Second Kings chapter 13 and verse 14 following. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehosh, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will only defeat it three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. One while, uh, once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood upon his feet. What matters is not what people say about you when you die and after you die. What matters is what God says, what God thinks. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend, that there'll be no misinterpretation, no misunderstanding. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument, that I will be very, very clear, very, very simple. You know for whom this word is intended. Your word will not return void. I ask you to apply this word to change lives and ask that this brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We look at Elisha for the last time. This is the 20th sermon on Elisha. I know you've been counting, and I know all of you knew that this is the 20th uh, but uh, actually, I had to count myself. But this is the final one. It is possible that I could have squeezed a little bit out of one or two things that will be touched on. But here we find Elisha at the end of his life. And I have to say that he apparently died an unhappy and disappointed man. This may surprise you. Now, he had Elijah's anointing. In fact, he asked for a double portion and he got it. And so, if you wonder how that is, 
what one does is count the number of miracles that Elijah performed and count the number of miracles Elisha performed, and it's double in the latter. We figure around seven or eight miracles under Elijah, around 15 under Elisha. And so that would be the way the double anointing would be calculated. Now, when I pray for a double anointing, and I've done it more often than I would care to tell you, what I have in mind is not quantity, extending how many more sermons I preach, but I wanted God to give me such insight and power to see in that kind of anointing. But so far, that hasn't come to me. But it came to Elisha whether that's what he wanted, but that's what he got, and it means that he had twice the number of miracles. We know that Elisha was an ambitious man because anybody that would have the cheek, if I may put it that way, to say to Elijah, I want a double portion of your spirit, an ambition uh, would be what drives a person to say that. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on comparing Elijah and Elisha, but I would have to say that uh, Elisha did not have Elijah's flamboyant personality. Elijah wore his feelings on his sleeves. Elisha was a quiet man, and quite the opposite, and yet both were singularly used of God. Now, the passages that uh, have just been read, and there are more that could have been read, but that would have probably taken about 15 minutes uh, just to get one little nugget out. But what we have here is that Elisha is beginning to slow down. And it became obvious that he would not have the spectacular homegoing that Elijah had. Uh, there would be no translation to heaven, no whirlwind, no fire. He died a disappointed man. Now, we cannot be sure what he hoped to accomplish, uh, uh, but we know in the case of Elijah, Elijah was very concerned about his place in history. He actually said, I'm no better than my forefathers. A little self-pity there, but it shows that he was thinking of his reputation, how he fit in. Uh, and Elijah, as I say, he, wear, he wore his sleeves, his feelings on his sleeves. But at the end of the day, Elisha died, a disappointed man, and he's forgotten about. You would have thought with a double anointing, they would remember Elisha, not Elijah. But when you come, say, to the end of the Old Testament, do you know the very end, uh, the last word in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says, I will send you the prophet Elijah that before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So although Elisha had the double anointing, Elijah is the one they talk about from then on. In fact, when the angel came to Zechariah and said, your prayer has been heard, you're going to have a child, he was told that the child, which would be John the Baptist, 
would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling Malachi chapter 4. And then when Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, before Peter, James, and John, although it was Elisha that had the double anointing, it was Elijah who appeared with Moses. And then later on, when Jesus was on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Aramaic says, Eloi, Eloi. And they said, He's calling for Elijah. The point is, although Elisha had the double anointing, he's pretty much forgotten. Well, we're going to look at Elisha in his last days. Now, this message, this closing message on Elisha, why is this a word that you should hear? Why is this an important word? Well, I'll tell you. It's for those who feel they have not accomplished what they wanted and they're coming toward the end. Now, I cannot say what Elisha hoped to accomplish, but you can mark it down that he somehow hoped probably to the very end that he would have a home going like Elijah. What we know is that he is ill. We don't know what kind of illness. The Bible says the illness that took him, he started getting ill and Elisha must have had that uneasy feeling that what he had hoped to accomplish, whatever that was, is coming to an end. And I wonder if there's anyone here. How would you feel if you found out this is your last week to live? Would you feel, well, I'm ready to go to heaven? Or does that make you nervous? How would you feel? What? Okay, well, th okay, well, thank you for that helpful word. I'm thinking of some friends of mine. My son-in-law's father recently had a stroke. And uh, recently, uh, since then, has uh, had a fall and broken his hip and had to have an operation. And uh, it looks like he doesn't have long. And I have a close friend in Scotland uh, his name is Kenny. A good chance he's watching me right now because uh, he had a heart attack this week and he won't be preaching. He's Church of Scotland minister. And I'm sure that Kenny is thinking twice now. When you have a heart attack, uh, it's very, very serious. And so what is it you want to accomplish? And I'm speaking to myself. When I think of things that I hoped I would accomplish. And, well, for example, I've got at least five books in me. But what if I were to find out I've written my last book? How would I feel? Or what if I knew that some of these prophetic words, I've had words given to me by respected prophets, unfulfilled. And then what if I find out this is it? You're going to heaven. I think, well, what about those prophecies? In other words, there will come a time, and I don't think we are ever ready for it, when we're told 
Your time is up. I want us to see a number of things now about Elisha. First, Elisha's dilemma. We pick up the story earlier on, the part which I did not read because uh, it's, it's, it's very lengthy and uh, I can just show you the highlights. But here's what we know, that Elisha felt led to go to Damascus. And the king of Aram, that's the king of Syria, heard that Elisha was there. And so he says to Haez Hazael, uh, take a gift and go meet Elisha and consult the Lord through him and ask, will I recover from this illness? Now, Elisha's reputation was vast. And that's the kind of question you could put to an Elisha and get an accurate answer. Uh, I've learned over the years never to ask a prophetic person to give you a word. For one reason, they'll always give you one. And then after you get it, you think, is it true? And they'll also give you a word that you like. And you say, oh, good. Oh, I can, I can take that. But then when you ask for them to give it, and then they give it, after a day or two, you think, hmm, was that from the Lord? It's a weakness of every prophet. Nearly all I know. You ask them for one, they'll give you one. But when you get a word from the king going to Elisha, he's doing that. And it's very interesting the way it's put. The king of Syria wants to know, is he going to die or is he going to live? This illness, will it get him? Well, here's the interesting answer. The answer is, uh, he will recover, uh, but I can tell you, he will die. What kind of word is that? But that's exactly what Elisha says. He will recover, but the Lord has shown me he will die. And you think, well, I don't think this is a very good prophetic word. Or you may say, he's going to have it both ways, because someday he's going to die. But here is the immediate meaning. It turns out that his illness was not fatal, but the one who delivered the message would the next day, we're told, he would take a cloth soaked in water and spread it over the king's face so he died. So the prophecy, was, it was a double prophecy. It was, both were exactly right. He didn't have an illness that would have killed him. He was getting well. But then he died because the same man who gave the word had ambitions to be the king. And then it, we're told as soon as Elisha gave that word, Elisha stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. You know, I, I wonder what it would be like to have an Elisha just look at you. You'd start wondering, what is he thinking? And then... Elisha starts to cry. And Hazael says, why are you crying? He said, because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites. You're going to set fire 
in their fortified places, kill their young men with a sword, dash their little children to the ground, rip open their pregnant women. And he says, how could I do anything like that? Well, I can tell you, the Lord has shown me that you're going to be the next king. And I'm sure the Lord showed him all the rest. And all of that came perfectly out. Uh, came out perfectly, just as Elisha said. It was a true word of God. He was not vacillating, trying to have it both ways. Well, now, that's the first thing I want us to see, Elisha's uh, dilemma. Now, here's why I say dilemma. You see, the prophet's dilemma is this. How much of what you know should you reveal? If there's someone here with a prophetic gift. There could be somebody. No reason there shouldn't be. Uh, and you see something. And, and you clearly see something. What do you do with knowledge like that? And you see, the greater anointing, the greater the suffering. And if God gives you a great anointing, chances are there will be a parallel level of suffering. And part of the suffering is the pain of being misunderstood. It's the pain of being blamed if things don't happen because you're the prophet, you're supposed to make things happen. And then it's the pain of knowing what's going to happen and you have to keep quiet about it. And so think carefully if you're wanting to have a prophetic gift. The question is, can God trust you with such knowledge? There's a verse in Psalm 25, 14. The King James Version says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. The NIV and most modern versions say, The Lord confides in those who fear Him. I cannot think of anything more wonderful than to have the Lord confide in me. But when you confide in somebody, that's because you're not going to tell anybody. Don't be like the person who, who says, I promised I would not repeat this. So listen carefully. I'm only going to tell it once. Did you get that? Maybe you didn't. If God shows you something and he says it's just for you, how does that make you feel? Can you keep quiet about it? Elisha went for a whole period when there was that great famine, he knew exactly what was going on. And they began to blame him for everything that was happening. And so what I'm saying is, this is the prophet's dilemma. But now there's a second thing in the passage that was not read uh, by Bruce a few moments ago. And I now refer to Elisha's deputy. You have this in chapter 9. Because we're told that the prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak under your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead, and there I want you to look for Jehu, and anoint him, and pour the oil on his head, and say, I anoint you king over Israel, then open the door and run, and don't delay. What we have here, Elisha's deputy. Elisha is getting older and decides to have someone else do what he would have done himself. And this being one of the 100 prophets. 
Now you may recall in previous talks on Elisha that there were a hundred prophets that were in his school. He was training them. And one wonders whatever happened to those hundred prophets. Well, we only know what happened to one of them. And one of them is now going to be a deputy and he is sent to uh, anoint the king of Israel, Jehu. And uh, you can't help but wonder, well, why couldn't one of those 100 be the successor to Elisha? One of the great mysteries is that God will raise up a Moses and then give the successor Joshua, and then Joshua has no successor. God raises up an Elijah and then gives Elisha a success, Elijah's successor, but no successor to Elisha. You see it in church history. There was no successor to the great Charles Spurgeon. Fortunately, here at KT, there's been a good succession. There's Eldon, Corsi, and then Wynne Lewis, and you, Colin. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have this kind of thing. And uh, I know you're not uh, as old as Elisha, and you don't look like you're going to die today or tomorrow. But uh, the day will come, the day will come that somebody else will be here. And it's something we could, it's not too soon to pray about it, is it? Yeah, I mean, don't pray like he's going to die tomorrow. But it's interesting. God sometimes raises up an immediate successor. Now, you would have thought one of these 100 prophets would do it. And what's interesting is that the man that is sent is called a prophet. It says so in verse 6. So even though he's one of the hundred, he's called a prophet. He's been trained by Elisha. And then he sounds so much like Elisha. He says, this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. And it turns out that what this is, is vindicating Elijah. It's interesting. There's no rival spirit uh, between Elijah and Elisha. Elisha is telling the prophet what to do, what to say. So what he does is cohere perfectly with Elijah, who said one day Jezebel will be killed and slain and she'll become unrecognizable, just be her head left. And in subsequent uh, verses, we see how this was, was done. But the thing is, the task of Elisha's deputy was to pour oil on Jehu's head and then run. And that's exactly what he did. This is the way Israel, Israel's kings were anointed. They poured oil on them. Now when it happened to David, Spirit of God came on him. We don't know that that always happened or if it ever happened again. Okay. Third, Elisha's disappointment. We come now to the final miracle that Elisha performed before his death. And that's the passage that Bruce has, has just read to us. And so we're told in verse 14, 2 Kings 13, Elisha was suffering 
from the illness from which he died. Whenever I read that in my own Bible reading plan, I come across it once a year, I think, you know, this shows that he's not going to get to follow Elijah. Elijah was taken to heaven with a, with a band of angels and fire, spectacular. And as I said, I cannot help but believe that Elisha somehow hoped right to the end that maybe he would be taken up. Uh, a friend of mine, John Paul Jackson, uh, who has an unusual prophetic gift, his prophetic words to me have been so accurate over the years. And uh, I won't go into all of those except to say that he believed that his greatest work was in the future. And uh, he now is cured of cancer. And then a couple months later, cancer reappears. And the day before he died, he was still talking about what he's going to do. And everybody around him knew he was going to die, but John Powell didn't. And, but he did. And the prophecies about himself, obviously not fulfilled. And that can be very sobering. I'm sure he thought that he wouldn't die then. I cannot help but think that Elisha hoped. Well, here's what happens. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him and says, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Don't know what he meant by that. Trying to show some kind of respect for Elisha. And then Elisha says, Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Then he says, Take the bow in your hands. And he said this now to the king of Israel. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And then he says, open the east window. And he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot. And then Elisha says, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. And he went on to say, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. But then he says, Take the arrows, um, and uh, so they took, he took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground with them. Now, here is the most interesting part about this story. And I can tell you now, for years, I've puzzled over this. What happened is that the king took the arrows and struck it three times and stopped. And Elisha was angry and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times because then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only those three times. So the question is, should the king have known to strike it more than three times? And the answer is yes. He should have had the discernment, the sense of God being present when after shooting the first arrow and Elisha is so excited and says it's victory, 
That in itself should make him see that if there are more arrows, he should just take them and keep striking and striking and striking. Because when God is present, you want to take full advantage of that moment. But obviously, the king had no discernment. What I notice about this, he admired Elisha, but had no sense of God that was with Elisha. He only admired the prophet. And it just goes to show that a lot of times people can admire a preacher and admire them, but have no sense of their own burden and what turns them on and why they're motivated the way they are because you cannot transfer that to somebody else. Well, what we know is that Elisha immediately rebuked him. And what is so sad, it's the last thing that Elisha did. In fact, Elisha died a disappointed man. And so we talk about Elisha's disappointment. If only the king of Israel had tapped the floor five or six times. You see, when there is a sense of God, you would know to do that. The king had no sense of God. Some of you know that I was named after my father's favorite preacher, Dr. R.T. Williams. And Dr. R.T. Williams used to say to ministers that he was ordaining, he would say, honor the blood and honor the Holy Ghost. That's what he would say to those he ordained. Honor the blood, honor the Holy Ghost. And over the years, I have thought I should do that as much as I can. This is one of the reasons I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus every time I preach. I'm honoring the blood. This is why I preach the gospel, the blood that satisfied God's justice. But then when he says, honor the Holy Ghost, what he meant by that was that you'd have enough discernment to know when God was present. And when God is present, you honor that presence. And you go with the flow of the Spirit. You don't push things over to make your way known. But you so honor the Spirit. It reminds me, Many years ago, in my church back in Ashland, there was a revival going on. We call them revivals in America. Maybe we should always call them missions, like the Brits do. That's a safer term. But we call them revivals over there. But there was one time it was really a touch of revival. This particular preacher had unusual power. And every night, more crowds came, bigger and bigger. The last night, the place was packed, people standing and we couldn't wait to see what is he going to preach this time. And he stood up in the pulpit. For a moment, he didn't say a word. And I noticed that tears filled his eyes. And he just began to sing. Wonderful, wonderful Jesus is to me. And I thought to myself, oh, I thought he was going to preach. Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God is He. And I looked at my watch and I said, well, you know, he's using up some of his time. I hope you'll uh, 
get on with it. Saving me, keeping me from all sin and shame. Wonderful is my Redeemer, praise his name. I thought, oh good, now take your text. And I was in my teens, but this, I wanted to hear him preach. And would you believe, he did it again. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful Jesus is to me. Oh, oh. Are you ready for this? He did it a third time. <laughs> but what happened was, all over the auditorium, people stood up and got out of their seats and ran to the front, and dozens came. Not a word of preaching. They'd been hearing preaching all week. But this man recognized the Holy Ghost. And he said, it's more important to honor the Holy Ghost than it is for me to preach my sermon. The king should have known as soon as Elisha said, the victory is yours, and he had all these arrows, he should have taken them, all of them. Take advantage of the moment. You see, when there's a certain kind of presence of God, it's the most wonderful thing. And honor that presence. You never know when God will show up like that again. Remember, the wind blows where it will. You cannot hear the sound thereof. You don't know where it's coming. So is the Spirit. He is sovereign. And so we're praying for a move of the Spirit here. And there's expectancy. Were God to grant it? And I pray every day that He will. Will we recognize His presence? But I'll tell you something. This verse, when... Elisha said, you should have struck four, uh, five or six times. That's had an effect on me over the years. That very verse, and I'll tell you why. What I do is prepare sermons and preach. That's what I do. That's me. And uh, when I work on a sermon, I have to decide at what point is it ready and sometimes I will say, you know, I understand that verse. I've got it. And I'll just think, this is going to work. But then there, are, there have been times, and it's happening more and more. <laughs> it's happening more and more. When I think, yeah, I've got my sermon. I've got my sermon. But there's more here. And I don't know what it is, but there's more here. And what I do is I just decide to wait. You would not believe over the years the times when without a commentary, just my Bible, a notepad and a pen, and i just read the verse again. I'll read it again. Like, oh, 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 this is it. And I write it down. And then the temptation is, well, now I really have a good sermon. I think, I think there's more here. There's more here. This is the way I prepare sermons. I think of this story. You should have hit it five or six times. And so you might find out God's got more to do, more he will give you. 
you perhaps know about Arthur Blessed who said that God told him at five o'clock in the morning to take the cross down from the wall and carry it on foot around the world. Every time Arthur tells that, I think, you know, that's good that Arthur gets up at five o'clock in the morning to pray. I got that wrong. Because Arthur said one day, he said, R.T., I often thought, what if I quit praying at four o'clock? He had been praying all night. That's when that happened. He said, if I would quit praying at four o'clock, all of this would never happen. And at five o'clock, God told me clearly, take the cross down. And it's become a legend in his own time. All because he just didn't give up. And I wonder whether some of us, we do our quiet time and we want to give so much time, read the scriptures and they will have done my bit. And not thinking what might happen if we tarry just a little bit longer. Well, it is so sad that Elisha had a disappointing end. And that leads me to the last point, his death. Now we might have thought that we were finished with Elisha because we're told Elisha died and was buried. But then we keep on reading and there's just a bit more. We're told that Moabite raiders would enter the country every spring. And once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they quickly threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. And when the body touched Elisha's bones, the man, Elisha, came to life. No, sorry. When the body of the man touched Elisha's bones, the man that was thrown in stood up, came to life, just like that, just by touching Elisha's bones. Now I've pondered this over the years. Let me tell you two things it doesn't mean, and one thing it does mean. First, it doesn't mean we should worship saints that are in heaven. There would be those, because this man who was dead, thrown in to Elisha's bones, and then he comes to life, that would give to some a green light to pray to saints that are dead. That is not what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. Second, it doesn't mean, listen to what I'm about to say, grave-sucking. I don't know if you know about that, but this is something that's going on in certain parts of the world where people think if they go to the grave of a man of God and lay on the grave and straddle it, that they're going to suck up his anointing on them. Well, you are laughing, but they take it seriously. It doesn't mean that. I find that dangerous, and I would be scared to death that I'd get another spirit out of that. This is totally wrong. Now, it's one thing to go to the grave of, of an honored man. I've been to Calvin's grave, and I prayed and said, God, uh, thank you for this man. Let me do in my day what he did in his. I prayed that way. I've been to Luther's grave. 
I go to the place where Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, say, Lord, do it again. But as far as straddling a grave, you know, but they're doing that. But that's not what it means. I can tell you exactly what it means. It's God sending a signal what he thought of Elisha. He may not have been taken up into heaven in a whirlwind with angels and fire. But now what he does, by letting this man come to life, by falling on Elisha's bones, God says, this was my true servant. And you know what God says about you after you're gone is the most important thing in the world. Whether I will get to accomplish what I want to. When I realized that John Paul thought he was going to live and died the next day, it's taught me a lesson, never to be so presumptuous. Here's the thing. Job said at the end of Job, chapter 42, verse 2, Job said, and this is the big lesson from the book of Job, now I know, this is Job speaking, no purpose of yours, speaking to God, can be thwarted. That is what Job learned after all of that. There are a lot of people that need to know this. No purpose of God can be thwarted. That means God's purpose will be done. Now, maybe a purpose of yours will be thwarted, but not God's purpose. And it's easy to take ourselves so seriously that we think what we want to do, we think we're led to do, it's of God. We could be completely wrong. But what we know is no purpose of God will be thwarted. You see, it's a warning to those of us who worry about our reputation after we die. You know, there are two men in the Bible that build monuments to themselves. And uh, one was uh, Absalom and the other was King Saul. And then I saw a verse yesterday in my Bible reading. Never saw it before. Read it a thousand times. He talked about those who named lands after themselves. In other words, there are people who are afraid that they'll be forgotten when they die. And so they want to leave something uh, and, uh, so that they'll get credit for it. Well, I can tell you, what you leave that you hope will cause people to remember you, do you know what will matter? It's where you are 100 years from now. And God's verdict on your life. Don't worry about protecting your reputation or building up uh, friends who are going to remember you and say all things about you when you die. Do you know how little that means? A hundred years from now, what God thinks is the big thing. So, Elisha may not have had the glorious, spectacular homegoing that Elijah had. God stepped in and let you know he owned that prophet, was a true man of God. What do you suppose God would say about you? Would God affirm you? And I ask you this question. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Would you? 
And if you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? Whatever would you say? What do you say? What would you say to God? He says, why should I let you in? What comes to your mind? You will stand before him. And suppose you had to give the answer, and to give the wrong answer means you don't go in, but you have to go someplace else. And listen to me, hell is very, very real. Don't go there. And you'll be by yourself. You won't have anybody whispering the answer. You won't have anybody coaching you. Well, here's what you're supposed to say. What would you say? God says, why should I let you in? If it does not come to your mind by, by now, if it has not come to your mind, because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if that doesn't come to your mind, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But I can tell you that can all change right now. I can give you a prayer to pray. Say it if you mean it. If you don't mean it, don't say it. You don't need to say it out loud. God will hear you. Are you ready? Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life.